Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 9th and 10th of July 2022. Film clips played at the live event have been edited out of the podcast. In this session, celebrated writer-director Destin Daniel Cretton speaks with New Zealand writer-director Roseanne Liang about his journey developing his directing and storytelling voice throughout his career. They discuss his experience making the award-winning Short Term 12 and how its success eventually led to him directing Marvel Studios' Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, the first film in the MCU to be led by an Asian actor and have a mostly Asian cast. Destin joined the Big Screen Symposium via live stream. This session is presented by Wingnut Group. Mōre nakoto, no mai haere mai. Good to see you here, dragging yourself out of bed in the morning on a Sunday. Uh, welcome to he kōrero rero ki a Destin Daniel Cretton, Koros and Liang Toku Ingwa. And it's my great pleasure to uh, speak with Destin, who is spending his weekend with us from Los Angeles. Uh, it's Saturday over there, it's in the past. Uh, kia ora, Destin. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Uh, let's get into it, because everyone in the audience wants to hear from you. Tell me, we, we want to hear your life story. Tell, uh, no pressure. Let's start with your upbringing and, yeah, what, when, when you first realised that this was the life for you. Oh, that, I mean, I still don't know if I realised this is the life for me, but when, when, I, um, when I was really young, I, I, well, I grew up in Hawaii, I grew up in a small town on Maui called Haiku, which is out in the country. There's six of us. We grew up like on this two-acre lot right next to the pineapple fields, just playing outside, pretty country living. So there was there was really no part of my brain that thought that I would be doing what I'm doing right now. There was um, I didn't know anybody in the film industry. I didn't even know what a film industry was. Um, I did love love going to the theater. I was really because growing up on an island. Um, I mean, I'm sure maybe people in New Zealand I can understand it. Like the theater was like a window for me to the outside world, and just seeing normal high school movies of high schoolers in uh, Middle America was so fascinating to me. Um, not only because it was such a, a seemingly exotic life that was so far from something I experienced, but but also because of the similarities that I saw with, you know, movies like E.T. that where there's a kid who's dealing with family drama that I could fully relate to. And, and it, it kind of helped me realize that I, will, I might be more connected to people out around the world than I uh, otherwise would expect. So, I mean, I, I was actually um, just looking at, at some photos. I don't know if you guys can see this, but this is this is a photo of of me and my grandma, um, and that's my brother next to me. That's me with the mullet. I think we both had mullets, <laughs> but rocking it. Ba- ba- based on the mullet and that that T-shirt, this was right around the time that my grandma bought a VHS camera. Um, it was, she bought it to go on her trips around the world, which she did with her, with her with my grandpa. One of the places she went was to New Zealand. It was her favorite place that she went to. Oh. And she would come back with, with videos of her travels, which we, and then we would just watch, watch their travels. And the, the outcome of that was that she, she I asked her if I could borrow the video camera. This is when I was around 11 years old or so. And she just let me borrow it for a weekend and then never asked for it back. <laughs> so I, I, I have, there's six of us in my family and we just started making movies from that time on. It became, so I, so I got it in my bones, but it wasn't until I was close to 30 years old that it, actually turned into a, something that that I could consider a job. Wow. When you were starting to make movies at 11, what kind of movies were they? Uh, there were, like, these pretty sophisticated commercials. Like, one was, 
one was like um, someone was washing dishes and they were, I think it was my sister. She was washing dishes. She was really grumpy about it, really mad. And then someone came and like put this dishwashing soap in and then she got really happy and the dishwashing <laughs> soap was was joy. So it was like, joy, joy. Have some. <laughs> um, joy is dishwashing yeah, liquid. Really, wow. Yes. Really, really witty, really witty <laughs> cutting. <laughs> so what happened at 30? To go to, go to university to study film. I left... I, I honestly never thought I'd leave the island. So I was uh, on Maui for, I graduated high school there. And then I spent two years there in community college. I, and then I ended up just going to a college because all of my friends were going to this college in California. And so I applied and got in. And it, I just found my, my, my worldview wasn't like, oh, I want to be a filmmaker, but I knew I loved it. So any chance I got, if there was a, like I took a, and TV production class in community college when I was on Maui. Then when I went to Point Loma Nazarene University, initially I was going to be a nurse when I went there, but then I saw that they had video production classes. They didn't have a, ma- a full major, but I got into communications with like a focus on TV production, which was mainly news and things but it was close. It was close enough to keep me really interested, and I, I honestly just thought it would be something that I would do as a hobby. So I was always making short films, mm. and when I, I I did a short film for my my senior project or my uh, when I was in college, and then I graduated and I just kept making short films. I'd I'd save my money and do one short film every summer. Over the course of, uh, I mean, I I think it took about three years after I graduated that I got accepted into San Diego State University for their master's program Mm. through a short, short film that I had done. And then that got me to keep making short films. And I don't know, it's just like, it's a long, sprawling journey to get to <laughs> finally making money off of it. But I never thought that I would be making money off of it. My my list of survival jobs is, is very long. Speaking of survival jobs, it, would you say that your breakout short, Short Term 12, came out of the job, some of the jobs that you were doing at that time? Yeah, I mean, when I was first graduated, I was looking anywhere for something in film or video production or camera work, but I couldn't find anything in San Diego. And the one place that was hiring was a group home for at-risk teenagers. And I I got a job there because I I, I had experience working with teenagers and um so I, I ended up getting a job there it was really one of the hardest jobs I've had but one of the most rewarding as well and I, I spent two years doing that not thinking that I would ever turn it into something but then I got into film school and when it was time to do my thesis project I was looking through my old journals from that time about two years had passed since I had worked there and I decided to do a short film just kind of pulling out stories of things that I had had journaled about and that became the short film which ended up going to Sundance and and winning the jury prize there which I mean I have to say like you you look at someone's bio and you just think when I was when I was starting out I'd look at people's bios and I'd get so intimidated because it just seems so like wow they won this and won this and won this I I mean, just for perspective, I, I had submitted to Sundance um, seven times with seven other short films wow. before and gotten the rejection every year, so much so that it was my yearly routine to submit to Sundance and expect a rejection. And the, this one, um, it was a long short, too. It was 22 minutes. Wow. And every I, I thought it actually had the least chance of getting into Sundance than anything I'd done before. And surprisingly, I got the call that it got accepted. So it wasn't just like one time lightning in a bottle. Yeah. 
And sorry, we've got so many questions, but I think probably the <laughs> biggest question is what was your experience of the success, the, the festival success of these films? What did you learn about festivals, critical acclaim and awards? Did that change you in any way? I think the biggest thing that I learned through through the festival circuit, which which is what for me one of the biggest lessons that I think you can learn as an artist, particularly in an industry like this, is is how to how to emotionally, personally, how to emotionally ride the the waves of success and supposed failure. Like how how to ride like that feeling of, oh, I got accepted in the Sundance. This is awesome. And then going to Sundance, how do you rate, what creates an, a successful experience going to any festival? Is it winning the award? Well, for, for me, I had lost, I haven't even gotten to go to many festivals for so long that just getting there was the success. I wasn't expecting at all to win the jury prize that year. But when I did, then then uh, psychologically, it's like, what does that mean, winning an award? Like the same the same short film that went to Sundance and won the jury prize earlier that year was rejected from two small smaller festivals that I had played at before that I was expecting to get into, and those rejections really made me feel like this movie was not going to go anywhere, that it was just a, you know, it was just an experience, which I had to psychologically be like, is that worth it? Is that experience worth it? If it doesn't go to any festivals, if if the world thinks it's a failure, is it a failure to me? I, that's a lesson that I've had to kind of relearn over and over is how much to believe in the hype when it's up here, and then how much to believe in the hype when it's when you're a loser, supposedly. <laughs> and and, and the, the, the truth is honestly always somewhere down the middle. Like the hype, the, the positive hype, there's so much of it that has nothing to do with the movie that you've done, and it's more around other things of timing or where, where it played. Or, and, the, and the same is true when you make something that supposedly nobody loves. It's it's all the truth is always somewhere in the middle. So for me, it, it, it's always been a process of of learning how to find where that reality is for me, and then I can make an assessment on how to get better, how to better my craft in a in a more sound way. Do you think you've nailed it in terms of finding knowing the gap between what you think is good or what is fascinating to you versus what an audience finds fascinating? Or is that just never, you just don't know? You just put something out into the world and... Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think, I think any time that I've, I've attempted to chase what I think an audience wants, uh, it fails miserably. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think the, the, the only thing that I, I can do is explore subjects that I think are meaningful to me at that moment in my life and do them in a way that I think are cool at, at that moment in my life um, that I feel are, is authentic or cool or funny. or And at very least, I have this snapshot of who I am at that point, what my taste was, what my decisions were at that point. When I look at that, I, I can't be any more embarrassed of a movie than I would be at looking at that picture of me with a mullet. Like at that point, <laughs> at that point in my life, I love that mullet. Like that's my taste, and uh, I think it's it's kind of fascinating to look at things that I've made and be like, oh yeah, I remember when I thought that was funny. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was just amazed by. We will talk. Get we will get to Shang Chi and how you came to make that movie, but. What astounded me was Smooth You, weeks before it was released, saying this is going to be a game changer. We are, we are the game changer. We are going to be a huge success, in, in other words. And I always felt that was such a boss move. How did he know? Like, did that, did that make you go, you know, what if he's wrong? Did that kind of freak you out or anything? Freak me out. <laughs> I was like, don't say that. Um, I mean, 
a little. I, I mean, Simu has something that I definitely do not have. It's that that outward cockiness, <laughs> which I find incredibly refreshing because it's typically something that is reserved for white dudes. Uh-huh. So I'm yeah. like, yeah. go for it. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, Ooh, I mean, that type of like all-in confidence, I think, is typically not given to minorities. So uh, it's actually a quality of his that the Asian in me like typically is like, but I've kind of <laughs> learned to, to, to love it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we should all, we should all be. And, and whether, whether it win, wins or not, I mean, you see dudes do that all the time and then <laughs> life just goes on like, like, talking about how they're definitely going to kick someone's ass in a boxing ring and then they get their ass kicked. They're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Like the shame, the shame of possibly losing is a big barrier perhaps and maybe we need to shed that. Um, Anyway, uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, (laughs) I could could talk about fear of failure forever. (laughs) Actually, no, tell me about imposter syndrome and self-doubt because... If you have it, how it manifests and how, what tools you've learned to deal with it. Imposter syndrome, anxiety, self-doubt. It's, I mean, I, I've actually done, done a decent amount of research about it because it's something I've dealt with my whole life. Uh, and what, what I have found is repeatedly, I mean, I'm, I'm now in a place where I'm getting to meet a lot of filmmakers that I respect. And what I've found is that the stories that I have connected to the most throughout my life of movies that I've connected to the most, that those filmmakers uh, deal with imposter syndrome and, and self-doubt and are not these, these pillars of confidence. And I do truly believe that that self-doubt can be a very healthy thing for the creative process mm. if you don't let it consume you. My therapist uh, would always say that if the anxiety is pushing you forward, is giving you adrenaline boosts to solve problems, it's a positive thing. If it paralyzes you and you can't get out of bed, yes, figure we need to figure and that happens sometimes, but and obviously that's not positive. So we've got to figure out how to get out of bed. But that uncomfortable feeling of like, oh shit, I learned to not love it, but 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 love it enough to where where I can sometimes reprogram my brain to be like, oh, my brain is working out right now. Right. It feels uncomfortable. It feels like my muscles are straining, but it's all up here. And that that helps me to to realize that it's just adrenaline going for a problem. And and typically I find that, you know, over the course of a few days or that eventually I see an outcome to that stress in my brain. I see a, a problem being solved. Yeah. Thank you to your therapist. I think that's, uh, I'm going to use that in terms of, <laughs> is the anxiety pushing me forward or is it paralyzing me? That's, that's brilliant. I, I want to talk about the craft um, and how you came to be such, uh, directing is a, is a lot of jobs, but you seem to do a lot of them so well. I want to play this, uh, this clip from Short Term 12, which was your first, not your first, it was your second feature film, right? Second feature, yeah. Yeah, and off the success of, of your short film. Let's have a watch of that. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen Short Term 12, I highly recommend it. Tell me about how you learn to work with actors how and how you create a space for them to do a scene like that. It's fascinating that you chose that scene. That was one of, one of the only scenes in Short Term 12 that we had to reshoot. We tried it once and it was at the end of a long day and it just felt everyone was just kind of losing, <laughs> losing their minds by the time we shot that scene. 
it, it didn't come together the first time through. It was, it was over the top, melodramatic, kind of overly written. We cut it together. I mean, it was a short shoot, so I had a few days. We, we cut it together, watched it, and it just wasn't, there was, it just didn't feel good. And so rewrote it. And we scheduled another, we were at that location for a bit, so we scheduled, rescheduled it again. And we did another long day of splits, and that was the last thing that we shot. And we got into it second time through, and we found our place, ourselves at the same spot we were in the time before, where we just were all losing our minds, wasn't working again. And we came to this point where Brie came up to me, and she was like, I can't do this. I mean, it's exactly what that, the feeling of that, of that uh, uh, scene is. She came up to me and she said, I can't do this anymore. If you tell me you want me to cry, I'll cry. If you tell me you want me to be mad, I'll be mad. Just tell me exactly what you want and I'll just like do it. But I can't, my brain is mush. Like she had done so much emotion that whole day. So she was just like, so we took a good break and then we we went back in it with that same exhaustion that Brie was feeling from doing trying to nail this scene, which was always like one of the problems was it was always really big. It was always like people shouting at each other and you couldn't you, you couldn't feel the love. And I think in some ways, it was that exhaustion that brought this softness out. Um, and this was, you know, one, one of the last takes where it was just, and for me, it, it became a lesson that there is no single way to direct. <laughs> there really isn't. Like, your, your job is to be open, um, to listen. I have found repeatedly, the more that I work with bigger and bigger actors that the one you deal with every person differently best thing you can do is get to know whoever you're working with whether they're the actors or your department heads or whoever and everyone's personality is different they respond to things differently actors i think are all in the same boat they're highly sensitive people and they and they're very vulnerable because their their face is being captured and they know everything you capture could be in front of an audience to make them look like idiots. Um, mm. If they're with the wrong director who's going to choose the bad takes, everyone has bad takes. So I find it very, the neuroses of, of, of a lot of actors, I actually find it to be very normal for the circumstance that they're in. Like no human being should be in that circumstance where something is capturing like a very vulnerable moment that you're doing that the best actors are so free that they'll give really bad takes sometimes. And it's it's my job to like let them know that those are okay to find the good stuff. And that trust to me is built. It's hard to do it. You can do it somewhat in rehearsal but it's really built once the cameras are rolling for me and the actors see that I am really listening and to what they're doing so it's it's less for me typically about giving words to them before we start shooting and it's more really watching what they're doing on take one and responding to all the good things and then making the adjustments on how to take us to a new place. And it, it's pretty quick over the, or sometimes over the course of a day or two, that some of the most defensive actors who have a reputation, who've had, you know, reputations of being defensive become the easiest actors to work with. As soon as they, and I get it, like, I would feel that way too, because I'm pretty insecure. And if I feel like somebody's, judging me like I just can't work work well and as as soon as the actor I think feels like oh they they saw what I did and I have someone who is really a sounding board and we're in a dance together that then it just the, the directing process becomes very easy. It sounds like you've got a real kind of instinct for literally like listening just listening sounds really simple 
But do you also ask for an audience with them before you're working together? Like, do you ask to have coffee with them, have a meal with them? Do you do all that? And you don't always get that, right, with big actors. Yeah, yeah. You, um, you definitely don't always get that. I mean, you typically will get at least, you can always find time to do it. Even, even, even if it's, I mean, there are times when big actors will show up on the day and, but I find that it's something that I learned when I did my first short film, which was the first time I was working with a professional actor. I was extremely scared. I thought this act, I knew this actor had worked with like huge directors before me. And I thought they would be like, this dude has no idea what he's doing. And there was a lot of pushback over the first couple of days shooting the short film. I was still getting what I needed, but it was taking a while to like have these. And, and rightly so I was being challenged because he didn't know what, if I knew what I was doing or not. Um, but it took, it really took about three days for me to have the realization that this actor was more scared than I was, and rightly so. Like, that this actor was was scared that I might make him look bad. He actually has a reputation on the line, and that his anxiety needed to have some nurturing rather than me just, like, trying to act like I knew what I was doing. Mm. And so... With, with that in mind, I really just started listen, listening more to him and and responding to that. And, I, and you know, I continued to work with him after that. We, we became pretty tight. That is something that I think ha- whether you, if you have time to go take an actor to coffee or dinner or have rehearsal time, yes, to, do, it, do it all if you can. If all you can do is walk into their trailer on the first day and have a one-on-one with them and just connect with them and say, I'm here for you. You are anything you need. I am here to, I want to get the best performance to make you look the best, to get, to find something together and try to create this uh, connection. I find that even just that does a lot for an actor. Mm, beautiful advice. Let's talk about guardianship and empowerment. Off the success of Short Term 12, you made even bigger movies. Tell me a little bit about how Just Mercy came together for you. Just Mercy was a, a book that I read. It was given to me by our, our producer of the project, um, Gil Nettery, gave me this book. And I started reading it in a coffee shop and I just stayed in that coffee shop for like six hours or something, reading the, reading the whole book. I couldn't put it down. And I felt everything in the book felt simultaneously foreign to me because it was not an upbringing that I had. It was not representing a culture that I grew up in, but it also felt so familiar to me in, in so many ways the character the way that the characters were written and like most things that I work on it's important for me to to see the the humanity and the love between humans despite the pain and the shit real shit that we're exploring through the subject of, of the movie and I found that tone was was woven together so beautifully in, in that book. And I really fell in love with Brian Stevenson. I, at first, was just would love to meet him. I did, and, and he had seen Short Term 12, and we, he, he really connected to, to the, the way that characters were drawn in Short Term 12. There actually are parallels, like where you start a character with somewhat of a stereotype where it's easy to put a preconceived idea of who that person is. And then, and then you start peeling layers off that humanizes them and gives, gives you a different perspective of them. Um, And Just Mercy does that really beautifully with all its characters. So that's what Brian really connected with and feel very lucky that he uh, chose me to tell that story. 
There's a question, um, the, the theme of this symposium is mana awaha, which is creative power. And who has the right to tell a story? How do you know a story is yours to tell? Um, and there's a lot of dialogue in New Zealand about who gets to tell whose stories. Um, how, did you, how did you approach knowing that this wasn't your upbringing and, but, and yet finding a connection with it? Did that ever make you anxious? And how did you overcome that? I was, uh, it, it made me very anxious, very, very anxious. Um, and I had incredible self-doubt at, at certain points uh, throughout the, the pre-production process. That's usually where most of my self-doubt comes in. The, the way that, the only way that I could tell a story like this is, is, is through humility and to come at it as a, a student. And mm. I, I knew that we didn't want to make a movie that only people within that community would relate to or that only people who believed already believed you know in the subject matter would would relate to we wanted people like me who didn't really know much about it to to connect to it so from that standpoint having an someone on the outside coming in to tell this story is not not a bad move as long as that person i think comes in with the the right humility um to to tell the story in, in in the right way and explore the things that that are being portrayed in this book in the in the right way. And I did that really by I think my anxiety at that point just um, spurred me to uh, to do an excessive amount of research. Um, and in in the same way that Brian the theme of Brian's book is that you you can't understand fully understand uh, anything unless you allow yourself to to get really close to it, and so I I, I did allow myself to get close to to Brian and and his work. Um, I went to down to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and and met with the lawyers of his organization. I met with Anthony Ray Hinton, who was on death row at the time of Macmillan. And, and so I was able to pick up a lot of information that, that be really, you know, made its way into dialogue and became a lot of the dialogue that, that you see in the courtroom scenes were, were us literally transcribing the transcripts from the courtroom um, onto the page. And all of, all of it was my anxiety just wanting to make sure that we get it right. And because of that, you know, regardless of what, what outsiders think of the movie, insiders who were there, um, the families who are connected to this, all have seen the movie and found it to be truthful and and very moving and empowering for them. So that that was uh, a big win for me personally because I was very anxious about it. <laughs> it's brilliant. Which brings us to Shang-Chi. I think you've done a lot of interviews about how that process, how you came to make Shang-Chi or pitching for it, meeting Marvel, working with the writer David Callahan. So I, I kind of wanted to ask you... <laughs> What's your approach to the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, working with, you know, Brie Larson, Lakeith Stanfield, Michael B. Jordan? I mean, arguably Brie, Brie Larson and Lakeith Stanfield before they were stars. How do you feel about Hollywood, the big leagues? How do you feel about that? I, I think it's all a, it's all a farce. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, think, uh, I think Hollywood and the, the glitz and glamour of Hollywood and fame and I, I actually think it's the it's the antithesis to real creativity and exploration. I think wow. it actually harms harms the creative process you know, once you start to to buy into a feeling of self importance or you know we we got this shit in the bag because we have Michael B. Jordan or something. And I I think trying I mean to me trying to create an environment where that kind of 
poison is not a part of it, that there isn't egos flying around and and the uh, a big big ego is actually not allowed in the room if if somebody is so self-important that they are not open-minded to explore a subject or a, or a scene that that type of mentality is not really allowed and when i say that there is no bullies in my arena of people hanging out when i say not allowed it's like it's just not respected or so it just kind of quietly goes away and i and i've i've had big personalities coming up into onto sets that i know have a reputation of being big and taking over and pushing you know like a selfish <laughs> agenda um and it's not like anybody needs to squash that person. It's just there's a community that's built that is so used to being open and exploring and finding something together that that becomes so contagious that the person who is used to trying to smash people down to get to the top doesn't, like, it just weirdly just starts to go away. And you see them get into it. And then all of a sudden it's just, um, and that does take, that does take having like a, a, a team mentality that is like, there is a no hassles policy. <laughs> and sometimes we do explicitly say <laughs> one, one of the good things about Hollywood is like your reputation does follow you around. And so a part of, of the hiring process is, you know, finding out from people if, if someone has a reputation of being collaborative and open, or if someone has a reputation of being kind of a bully. And do you do you do your research? Do you ask with everyone who's worked with that person to find that out beforehand? Yeah, right. Yeah, we try to. Yeah, yeah, if we can. Yeah. And now, I personally, there, there's two ways to think about it. I have worked with people who have a, a reputation like that, but when I'm when I've met with them, I've realized like that there there may be other things contributing to that reputation. Yeah. And I've seen those those people. Um, I don't know about change or or maybe see the really the true side of themselves once they're in a healthy environment of people, of creatives who aren't trying to stomp all over each other. I don't exactly know because there's not like a, a clear, but I am very clear that I, I will not have toxic ego or behavior on on a movie set because there's for, there's really just no time. You, you barely have time to do what you need to do. And as soon as there's a toxic personality or ego or somebody, you know, talking down, talking condescendingly to people around me, like my brain starts to shut down. So that that's the only time that I will pull someone aside and be very clear with them what is allowed and what is not allowed around this camera or this set. Because... Every, I mean, actors are sponges. They pick up vibes so quickly. And as soon as the, the somebody walks in with just a raised tone or talking to a PA like they're nothing or like that stuff just starts like getting around and it does work its way into into performances. And it, it, it's, yeah, I, I think there's many wonderful business arguments for, um, that you can use to uh, shut down attitudes like that. I love it. I, I'd, I'd love to ask the exact words that you say when you're talk, but I think I feel maybe. That's, <laughs> I'll talk to you later. I'd love to get into some questions that the uh, we've got many questions. You've worked with so many great actors. Uh, I'm curious: is there a favorite anecdote you'd like to share about an actor you've worked with? Favorite anecdote. I want to hear about you working with Tony alone, but I'm not going to... Oh, yeah, Tony... T- um, so Tony, he he prepares extensively on his roles, but he purposely... I don't know if he always does this, but for me, he purposely did not want to show me anything until we started shooting. So we mm-hmm. talked extensively about the role. We He would say, I, yes, I... I've, I've been working on it and I, I want to show you when, when 
when we when the camera rolls. He goes through and an, a very like you would think someone like Tony would not get nervous or anxious, but he he apparently got, like that's a huge part of his process is just kind of locking himself away and and finding the character. And for this role, he apparently for two months he could not find the character. Mm-hmm. And he almost he almost backed out. I didn't know any of this until I became friends with him later on while we were oh shooting. But he, he almost backed <laughs> backed out a couple of times because he couldn't find this character. And then suddenly it clicked. And uh, this is all just him in his in his hotel room or at home, whatever, trying to trying to figure it out. And then it clicked. So day one, I was extremely nervous because. And Tony is like a huge, I mean, I've been so found out by him since I saw Chungking Express ages ago. And he does his this first take of a, of a scene. It was like, I looked at my producer as soon as take one was done. And I said, that's already so far beyond anything I thought. <laughs> I would, I could get for a scene like this. I, I don't even know what to tell. Like what? It, like you don't, I know I have to go. I know I have to go give him direction. But I'm like, <laughs> t- take one was like so good. I was just it, t- we started the take and it was like I was I forgot I was directing. I was just watching uh-huh. a movie. With, and that's that's kind of how Tony is. It's like every every take is so fascinating in its own in its own way and i i found him to be like you see tony on screen and he's so stoic and so intricate and and deep in these tiny details in his performance and i i found it's not like some magic that's happening it is he is the first person on set he's the most the the hardest working the most prepared actor I've ever worked with. Wow. Um he he never goes back to his trailer. He sits he sits next to the camera. We're like Tony Tony, we're not going to be set up for like 2 hours. It's okay. It's okay. Well, um come in come in the shade or come, no no no, it's okay. It's my job. It's my job. Um and he just he just sits and watches cuz I'm like what do you what is he doing? We thought you a like, trailer, just, man. Like, yeah. yeah we're, we're like setting up lights and still trying to figure out how we're going to shoot the scene. And he's just watching everything. Yeah, and then he watches the stand. We bring the stand-ins in. He's kind of watching where they're standing. We, and then and then I'm like, okay, Tony, uh, we're ready for you. And I was like, so here's what we're thinking. And he's like, oh, no, no, I know. I've been watching. Um, wow. And so... I don't even have to like tell him where to stand, tell him what he's just watching everything. And then he comes in and he's just, it's like every, his brain is already so in it by the time we start rolling that there are no, there, there really are no bad takes. That's a dream. Um, that sounds like an absolute yeah. dream. Yeah. Yeah. We've got another question. This is a beautiful one, actually. Jessica Sanderson writes, there's so much about Shang-Chi that I loved and appreciated. Language loss trauma put in a blockbuster film especially. Thank you. I wanted to know if you had an emotional response to the dragon when you saw it in full uh, for the first time. When I saw the dragon in Shang-Chi, I cried. Being Māori, we grow up with our own version of dragons, Tanifa. Your dragon felt like something so familiar that's only existed in our minds and it's rare for a film to surpass what you see in your imagination. Thank you for that. Oh, that's so cool! Thank, thank you to. Uh, I mean, that dragon was was created right there in New Zealand. So, oh, like, yeah. ah, we should. That, that was all wet. Yeah, that oh was. Oh my all gosh! Wet. Tell was me that, about. Was that question asked by somebody who works at? Wet yeah, Earth? is that right? <laughs> Jessica, no, it was not. It came from the heart. Tell me, actually, we've got some questions about the implications of the Unreal Engine technology on the LED volumes. Did you use that uh, Mandalorian sort of uh, stuff for for Shang-Chi? No. Right. No, we didn't. We didn't. Okay. Um, and, and do you, will you, <laughs> working in big worlds again, or are you like, eh, I'm not sure about it? I personally have not, 
I, I haven't found a reason to yet. Right. Um, I, I, I think the, that technology is really good for things that you, you like clearly know what the environment is that you're going to be shooting in and you have that entire environment rendered out beforehand and then you can go in and, and really use that technology to its fullest. The way, you know, the way that our movie was coming together and a lot of movies come together is you're, you're kind of, you have a decent idea of like what the world is that's going to be behind these characters, but you also want the freedom to manipulate it afterwards. So at least for us, it made way more sense to shoot things on a green screen. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the old technologies. We have a question about um, how did you feel when certain groups online seemingly wanted Shang-Chi to fail? I want to add my own addendum to that, which is how does the mantle of representation weigh on your shoulders? The mantle of representation was like what gave me panic attacks in pre-production of Shang-Chi for like for months. And it was really hard um, because in, in pre-production, there are just so many problems to solve. And as the, as the clock is ticking, I just became more and more scared that this was not going to come together. Um, and I did begin to panic quite a bit. And it was, it took a lot of work to to reprogram my my brain to a place where it's like one it's okay to fail that's probably the biggest thing you know to reprogram my brain that it's like it's it's okay to fail like we it's it would be a much bigger failure to not try to not attempt to do this mm. um and and it is it is hard when you're doing something like this because you know my thought was one on one hand i'm i'm doing something for kids when i was their age i didn't have anything like this so i'm potentially putting something into the world for a new generation of kids that could be really cute for them <laughs> um but the the pressure of doing it poorly and potentially one disappointing an audience but also there's like this this fear that if you know if it sucks and it and it totally bombs no no studio is going to take a chance again on doing a big thing with an all all asian cast or an asian superhero so it it was a lot of pressure you know i i feel very lucky that in in every movie that i've made there is a lot of pressure and I, I feel lucky that every time I, I have been surrounded by people who are not adding to that pressure, the people around me are actually um, helping to talk me off the ledge, to keep my head down, to look at like the problems in front of me and just start solving them. Because mm. it's all that outside pressure that I, that in the same way that Hollywood glitz and glamour, I think like can corrode the creative process all of that any kind of outside pressure can can make these movies feel like bigger than what they are and what they actually are is just a movie just a movie like any other short film that you've done the process is exactly the same you prep as much as you can and eventually you're in front of a monitor or looking at, at the frame that you are creating and you're just making that frame as good as you can and then you do another frame and another frame and another frame and it's it's actually for somebody who deals with anxiety like filmmaking I think is is actually a very uh, zen <laughs> process to go through because eventually, everything comes down to one thing like you have to be present in that moment with that actor and from the time you say roll to cut you are as present as you possibly can be and it actually that is when things really start to calm down for me and um i find it to be a very strange form of meditation <laughs> i love that directing is meditation <laughs> 
Have you allowed, I, I just, we're, we're at the end of our session and I just want to ask, uh, I want to ask you, what would you give yourself on a report card in terms of how your career's going right now? Would you like, do you think you're a pretty cool guy or do you still suffer from, do you still suffer from, uh, you know, that, that inner voice? <laughs> Sorry. Do, do I think I'm a pretty cool guy? Yeah. Like, um, are you, I mean, I think you're an A plus, but like, do you think you're an A plus? <laughs> Um, Not that grades mean anything, uh, right? Like, sorry, this is a weird I, question. Uh, yes, if I thought that I was an A plus, I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure that would be a good thing. So grades aside, um, <laughs> when I look when I look back at the choices that I've made in my career um, and everything, I'll just say my life because I feel like it, 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 it's impossible when you're in a when you're in a creative field particularly if you're writing and directing, I think in a good way and, and in, in a challenging way, it's really hard to separate life from your work. Like um, mm. it, everything that I've ever been going through emotionally, when I have a kid, when I'm getting married, when I have breakup, when I'm depressed, it all becomes entwined in the thing that I'm making at the time. When you look at short-term 12, like I... I was very much processing through who I was in the context of my parents and my upbringing, um, my my own fears of having kids and putting my own shit on them and what what the repercussions of that could be. Um, and if you look at every film that I've done, you'll see like what I'm going through woven through that. And I feel when I look at my career and my life choices, yeah, I feel pretty good about them. I don't know. I feel, I feel like, I feel like I have not made a choice that I regret. I think there, there have been times that I've, I mean, I'm, ch I'm really always chasing a balance of, of, um, of work and life of family and, and, and career. And, and I feel pretty happy with uh, that, that every film that I, 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 I've done, I can see that personal journey in there somehow. Thank you. Thank you, Destin. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Big Screen Symposium 2022 is brought to you by Script to Screen. We are grateful to our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, AUT, Images and Sound, and Te Mangai Paho. Voiceover is by me, Anna Corbett, and music by Poddington Bear.